Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. On this week's episode, we have Justin and Lauren. Neutrinos are bombarding us every second, and our lives are full of them, and they're one of the most fundamental particles in physics. But the Nobel Prize for Physics in 2015 is actually around revolutionising our understanding of them. It could make us rethink the entire standard model and what that may mean for particle physics. So if I were to ask you what makes up everything around us, you'd probably tell me, well, atoms and elements and so on. And they go, cool, well, what makes up an atom? And you dig a bit deeper and we, we start talking about things like neutrons, electrons, protons. And I start asking, well, what makes up them up? How do they work? And that's where we enter the realm of particle physics. This is the physics or the study of what makes up everything in the universe, but at an incredibly fundamental level. So it's like instead of studying the, the beautiful Lego creation you've made, we're actually studying what made the Lego bricks themselves. And that is what particle physicists spend their time doing. Sometimes it's theoretical, and other times it involves really, really big and awesome machines, such as the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. You may have heard mention of the Higgs boson, that's also another element of particle physics. And it sort of all relates to the standard model, which is what we use to describe, in general, particle physics at the moment. And this is a working principle that we've got, and it's proven our best model at this point in time. But as always, these things are inevitably under change. What's in the standard model? Well, it contains around 61 elementary particles because you have to account for all the types, generations, antiparticles, and colours. This is going to sound a bit weird, but bear with me. We have quarks, leptons, gluons, photons, Z bosons, W bosons, and Higgs. And all of these have different types, generations, antiparticles, and colours. And with this all, it makes it rather interesting and fascinating. Um, and that's how we actually get to all of the standard elementary particles that make up everything that we know about. They're all made of these different kinds of building blocks. And a whole bunch of different studies have been undertaken to piece together the information on what these building blocks are. You may remember the big hubbub about the Higgs boson. And so when we discovered Z bosons in CERN in 1973, we're like, okay, well, that's cool. That won a a Nobel Prize for Physics in 1979. But we, you know, still kind of suspected there would be something else that would be governing mass and gave stuff mass. And we needed a large hadron collider to actually get at that. And that's how we discovered proof for the Higgs boson, which again was awarded with the Nobel Prize in Physics very recently. But there's more, more to the puzzle. And sometimes there's even more elementary aspect of it. And this is where we start talking about neutrinos. And the Nobel Prize for Physics this year is actually into the understanding of neutrinos. And why we need to understand them is because, again, they're part of this basic elementary particles that make up everything around us. But they also contain really, really important properties for us. And they are literally all around us all the time, and we barely understand them. So what... Is a neutrino. <laughs> well, we live in a world of neutrinos. Thousands and billions of them are flowing through your body every second, and you don't even notice. You can't see them, and you really totally cannot feel them. They actually pass through you. They don't even interact with anything inside your body, and you think you're pretty dense and solid, but 
you know, they just pass through you as if you were nothing, slipping through the gaps like you were some kind of big mesh that you're just traveling through. And they travel through space almost to the speed of light, and they hardly ever interact with anything, no matter how dense it is. So where do they come from? What are they? What are they doing? Well, they're actually quite fundamental to all of life, and they're really, really fascinating. Some of them were made in the Big Bang and have been travelling through space ever since then for over 15 billion years. Others come from exploding supernovas. Obviously, when a star dies and releases all kinds of elementary particles scattered across the universe, neutrinos make up of that. Some of them are actually released from naturally occurring radioactive decay. And, you know, even from our own bodies, about 5,000 neutrinos per second are released from an ice- when an isotope of potassium decays. So if you had a lot of bananas, well, you're going to be giving off some neutrinos just as, as part of your everyday life. Now, the majority of neutrinos that reach Earth originate probably from the sun, right? And pretty much, aside from light, which are photons, which we're bombarded with constantly, especially when we're inside the light, but even if we're in the dark, we're still getting hit by photons from stars. Neutrinos are pretty much the most numerous particles, second only to photons, in the entire universe. So they are everywhere. Photons, neutrinos, they're always around us. We're showered by them continually. They're really hard to get a grasp on and study, and we really don't really know very much about them. For a very long time, we weren't even sure if you know they existed or we could detect them. The Austrian physicist Wolfgang Pauli was actually is quoted as saying, I've done a terrible thing. He's postulated a particle that cannot be detected. Because in his mind, it was no actual way for them to actually detect this particle at the time. Uh, Fermi, Enrico Fermi, actually found a way to work in this lightweight neutral particle, which he called a neutrino, um, that's the Italian coming through, into his the theories which eventually became the standard model. But no one would really realise that what they were talking about would actually revolutionise our study of particle physics and cosmology. In the 50s, when we started building nuclear power pants, we actually picked up some neutrinos and detected them properly from as they were being released. We had the first real detectors. We had really traces. It's basically like ghosts, like catching a ghost. But we saw enough of these traces to actually realise that. So, what was this New Year's Nobel Prize in Physics about? Well, these researchers actually have solved one of the longest-running puzzles of neutrinos on around neutrinos. So in the 1960s, scientists calculated the number of neutrinos released by nuclear reactions. So maybe then we'd say apply that to the sun and say, well, how many neutrinos is the sun releasing? And when they carried out the measurements on the Earth, they were only picking up like a third of what they thought was there. So there was two thirds missing and no one knew where they went. There are a whole bunch of different suggestions and some of them crazy, some of them amazing. But the standard model sort of outlined that they had to be going somewhere. One group of people suggested that maybe, maybe the neutrinos change their identity. So they move, uh, and they're like, we have three different types of neutrinos. I mentioned that big chart of the 61 different building blocks. There's electro-neutrinos, neutrinos, and tau neutrinos. And there's different partners. And, and so maybe they suggested that there was the swapping between them. And since the sun only produces electron neutrinos, maybe they just transformed or changed. And, uh, which would mean, you know, if we're trying to detect the electron neutrinos on Earth from the sun, then we're missing these things that were there. They just, you know, they change what they look like. So then, yeah, that's just an idea. It's one of the ideas with many. And the problem with a lot of the stuff in standard model physics and phys- particle physics research is that even if you come up with an idea, 
Finding out a way or a machinery to actually fix that is another story entirely. And the proof of where these neutrinos were going required pretty intense and powerful detectors. And they built huge, colossal detectors buried deep underground in order to shield out as much noise as possible from cosmic radiation from space and from spontaneous decay from the surroundings. And even then, it's immensely difficult to separate out a few true neutrino signals from a billion of false ones. And even in the air of the mines, the detector material itself contains naturally occurring trace elements of decay that can also create interfering measurements. So, what do you do? And where do you study this? What kind of facilities can actually create and study and capture and trap these mysterious ghostly particles? Well, one such neutrino observatory, as they're called, is the Supic is the Super Kamiokande, which came operational in 1996, in an old zinc mine about 250 kilometers northwest of Tokyo. And there's another one uh, which was also worked on, which is the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory, built into a nickel mine in Ontario in Canada, which began observing in 1999. So these two old mines were repurposed into big machineries required for detecting neutrinos. In these caves buried deep underneath ground in these mines, there's a perfect environment to try and detect these ghosts, these chameleon-like particles. And that is what the Nobel Prize for this year in physics was awarded for. So the Super Kamiokande in Japan is a gigantic detector built probably about a thousand meters below the Earth's surface. It's got a big, big tank, 40 meters high, so that's quite large, and filled with 50,000 tons of water. The water is so pure that light beams can travel 70 meters before their intensity is halved. Okay, if you're going into a swimming pool, right, it may, light only travels about a meter before its intensity is halved. This is incredibly pure water in a very large volume in this really big tank buried a thousand meters underground. And more than a thousand light detectors are located on the top side and bottom of this tank and what they're doing is they're discovering and amplifying even the most minute of flashes and changes in this ultra pure water the idea being that as the neutrinos pass through the tank not every now and then some of them will collide with actually the nucleus or an electron inside the water and that will give a little bit of a spark and change and there'll be faint flashes of blue light are generated so this would be incredibly subtle, but slightly visible. Especially if you've got it monitored in this huge, huge tank with super pure water that propagates any of those little flashes. It's also pretty clever because the shape and the intensity and the type of Chernikov light that's actually released reveals what type of neutrino it actually caused it because different neutrinos will, con- will behave in different ways and release different types of light, of this Chernikov light, which means that we actually have an insight through this apparatus, such as it is, of actually classifying the types of neutrino that we see. Now, how many do you get? Well, I talked about before how we're constantly bombarded with neutrinos that just pass through us all the time. In the first two years of operations, Super Kamiokande sifted out about 5,000 signals. So two years, 5,000 neutrino signals. That's not a lot of return, but it's better than you can get anywhere else. And that's, that's heaps more than any other experiment that we've ever done with neutrinos. This is still 
way less than what we expect uh, if, from cosmic radiation. We were still getting a, a closer idea from it, but you know we, we were not quite there yet. Now, the, the Super Kamiokande actually picked up neutri- muon neutrinos, a certain type, coming straight from the atmosphere above. Good, that's kind of maybe related to the sun. As well as those in the detector from below having gone through the entirety of the Earth. Again, this is what neutrinos do. They just go wherever they want, man. You can't hold them down. Now, there ought to be equal new numbers of neutrinos coming from both directions. Because, you know, we're not really an obstacle. So, they should just be coming from everywhere, all over the place. Um, but... The more neutrinos that came straight down to the Super Kamiokande were more numerous than those passing first through the globe. So that indicated that the more neutrinos had travelled a longer time before they underwent identity change. And this is, you know, so the ones that went through the Earth had obviously travelled a bit longer and maybe gone through an identity switch, whereas the ones coming down from the top probably hadn't done that yet, so they're still detectable and easy to find, because they only had to go through a few dozen of corners. So the Super Kamiokande actually did a lot of great stuff in helping us isolate what's going on here, but we still didn't quite have all of the puzzles solved. And that's where the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory, SNOW, comes in. Buried 2,000 metres beneath Canada, Old wasteland, an old nickel mine, is the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory, SNOW. Inside it, there's a big sphere, about 18 metres in diameter, which is surrounded by monitoring points for light, full of heavy water, very pure. And inside this, in the 9,500 light detectors in this tank filled with 1,000 tons of heavy water, was where we tried to capture different types of neutrinos. So Snow was actually trying to specifically only find electron neutrinos, types of the ones created from the sun. And to do that, they actually, instead of filling with super pure water, they actually used heavy water, which is different from ordinary water that has an, at each hydrogen atom, the water molecule has an extra neutron in its nucleus, which creates the hydrogen isotope deuterium. So it's still H2O, but the hydrogen itself has an extra neutron actually in its core. Now, why is deuterium useful? Deuterium is actually gives an additional possibility for a neutrino to actually collide with it. It's a little bit bigger. So, hey, maybe it will get hit more likely. Uh, and that's kind of the, the logic behind it. Right, so what they were trying to study was electroneutrinos from the sun. And in theory, they should be coming through on all sides in sort of the same numbers. Well, if they were fewer in number in a certain side, then that would mean that something had happened to them on their way from the 150 million kilometer journey from the sun. Maybe they'd change their identity and become a different type, not electroneutrinos, but maybe muon or tau neutrinos that we can't easily detect. So over 60 billion neutrinos per square centimeter that reach Earth every second from the sun, only you know three per day were captured in the first two years of operation of the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory. So you know there's huge volumes coming through, and they're only capturing you know small amounts at first. Now, the amount that they're actually getting through corresponded to about a third of the expected number of electron neutrinos. Remember, the sun releases electron neutrinos primarily, and we figured that, you know, there should be this many of them. And what they're actually finding is that they're only finding about a third of the expected number. The other two-thirds had disappeared. The sum, however, if they counted all three types together, corresponded to the exact number of neutrinos. So obviously this means that the electron neutrinos were just changing their identities as they traversed along. They were changing their hats, and that's why we weren't really seeing them easily. But how does that happen? How do you change the identity of a neutrino? 
The two massive projects detecting neutrinos yielded really interesting finding, and that is that obviously the neutrinos themselves, the electron neutrinos, were transforming, metamorphosizing from one type to another. But the impact implication of this would mean that neutrinos would have to undergo some kind of change, and that would require them to have mass, because otherwise they can't change. That would go against what we know about neutrinos in the first place as well, and we don't really then understand how that would come about. Now, we have to delve into the world of quantum mechanics to understand how this actually would work. In quantum mechanics, particles and waves are basically the same, different aspects of the same physical state. A particle with a certain energy is described by a corresponding wave of a certain frequency. So, in quantum physics, the electron neutrino, the muon neutrino, and tau neutrinos are all represented by super, superposed waves that correspond to the different neutrino states with different masses. When the waves are in phase, it's not really possible to distinguish the different neutrino types from each other. When the neutrinos travel through space, well, the waves go out of phase. And along the way, the waves are superposed in different ways, so they combine in different combinations. And this superposition yields the, the basically like the probability or the breakdown of which neutrino type is the most likely to occur there. From this, we sort of we get an understanding of which one appears in which way. So for, for the superposition between the different waves is actually how we figure out which neutrino is which. And this has actually caused um, this weird behavior that we see is because the different differences in the mass of the different neutrino. So obviously the different types of neutrino have really, really small differences in really small mass. So it really sort of changes one of the aspects of the standard model. Now the standard model, at its innermost, it's been incredibly successful and helped us explain a lot of things over about 20 years, it's resisted most experimental challenges against us. But, you know, the standard model says that neutrinos don't have a mass. But the only way that you could explain the types of change we see in them when they switch identities in hats is if they had a mass. And it's reeled the first apparent crack with experimental evidence in the standard model. And that means we have to start to rethink the actual definitions of our particle physics. So, you know, we still have questions. So many questions. And if anything, this experiment and the awarding of this prize has gone to show that we there's more to know and that some of our assumptions aren't exactly true. So there's a couple of key questions that need to be asked before we can develop a new theory and adjust the standard model or come up with a new model. The first is, what are the neutrinos' masses? We don't really know. Why? Why are they so lightweight? And are there more types than the three currently known? Are we missing some? Uh, are they sort of matching up with themselves and and are they any different from the other standard types of particles? So this year's Nobel Prize in Physics has been awarded because we've got crucial insights into this ghostly world of neutrinos. But the more we learn, it means the more we have to try and refine our understanding of particle physics, which may lead to changes in the standard model, but also may lead to an entire new area of particle physics that we don't know at the moment. And slowly but surely, we're taking a crack at some of the most complicated, but ever-present, and ghostly parts of particle physics. So that's why the Nobel Prize for Physics this year was awarded to Taiki Kajita from the Super Kamiurei Neutrino Observatory and Arthur B. MacDonald from the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. So the Nobel Prize for Physics in 2015 was awarded to two research institutions that really led the way in helping us revolutionise our understanding of the neutrino and could make us rethink the standard model. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.